You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 3-1 pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye baseball. Eight strikeout for the King tonight and make it... 23 consecutive scoreless innings for Phoenix. Strike three called on the outside corner, and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seager, that just happened. Thank you very much. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. Yes, welcome back. Seattle Mariners baseball podcast at Mariners Pod, the Mariners Pod. Ah, ha, ha. Well, yesterday was pretty fun. This is going to be a good podcast. We have a ton of highlights to get to as the Mariners have won their fourth series in a row. They've taken the series against the Houston Astros, and we're going to break it all down coming up. It was a complete game. Offense, defense, starting pitching, the whole thing as the Mariners hammer the Astros and take game two of the series Highlights are coming your way. Great reaction coming from the clubhouse, too. That comes up in a couple of minutes as well. Great interview with Mike Hampton. You get to know the Mariners bullpen coach coming up. Shannon Dreher sits down with Mike Hampton for a nice long chat, and it's a good one. It's You'll enjoy it. That comes up. And also, Spencer Bingle is going to be by, and we're going to have a conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. So from time to time, I like to dive into – different areas of baseball stats-wise and whatnot that uh, are a little uh, under the surface. And today we're going to talk about actual velocity versus perceived velocity, which I think is a really fascinating conversation. And then we'll get into some other stat stuff as well with StatCast and maybe where things are headed. I think it's a conversation you'll enjoy and involves the Mariners closer as well which I think is kind of interesting so all that is coming up first I have to say I am completely blown away with the responses the last couple of days I asked I got a couple emails from uh, different parts of the world and so I asked I did this once last year and I I just asked a couple days ago where are you listening to the podcast from and it is amazing just know that anywhere you go in the world, there is a Mariners fan that's close to you. That is what I've learned through this process. I wish I could read them all. The responses were fantastic. I don't have, I just don't, I don't have time to read them all. But I'll get through a few because I think it's awesome. I think uh, it's it's interesting for everyone to hear just where people are from. I think it's very cool. So I'm gonna rip through a few here, and again, I wish I could get to everyone, but. If I don't get to you, I'll respond to you. So one way or the other. But let's do a few. Let's start with at Aiden Pendlebury, a New Zealander supporting the Mariners from the UK. That's great. Says 3 a.m. starts not ideal, but the wins are worth it. So hopefully you're enjoying this one. At Brayden Explosion from Chilliwack, B.C., about three hours from Seattle. At Adam Weber 3, Listening at the gym in Boise, Idaho. Boise's a nice place. At Mariner's Sea, listening in Salt Lake City. I had so many from so many different states. It's pretty great. 
This one is from C.J. Miller, 1974. United States Air Force stationed in the U.K. and watches the Mariners via the MLB app. Welcome from Raymond Washington. Great to have you with us. Thanks so much. This is from at Seattle Timey from Helsinki, Finland. From Piperman416, Peter Reese. Melbourne, Australia. From Colton, Ogden, Utah. Mark Stepp, Vancouver, B.C. Zach Gonzalez, one of our favorites, from Myrtle Beach. This is from Vendata, listening from Bali, Indonesia. That's impressive. Amy Suarez, 34, from Othello. So plenty to Washington State. I didn't want to ignore Washington State, so pick a few out here and there. From Casey Zachary, from Haiti. Melissa Wiebe, from BC. I'm sorry if I mispronounce some of your names. I'm doing my best. One of our favorites, who I think has been here from the beginning, Blake Lawatch, also from Boise. This one's great. This is from Jungster, at Jungster, Ted Jung. I'm listening on vacation with my wife in Paris. <laughs> That's fantastic. Taking the podcast to Paris with you. John Koch moved to Colorado Springs last May from Washington. This one's good. Dr. Funk at Hops and Herb. I'm over here in Scotland listening to the podcast. Never miss an episode. Thanks so much. From Mike Barr, sorry to say, listening from Seattle, not so long distance. It's okay. I love the Seattle listeners. It's fine. There's nothing to be sorry about. <laughs> Thomas Surreal from Austin, Texas. Spencer McFalls in Kansas City. Matt is in Croatia. Eric Dodd in Napa Valley. Brian Benzouf, who we hear from from time to time from Flagstaff. Eric Price, one of our favorites, currently listening in Los Angeles, but that's going to change. He'll be on tour next month. So he'll be taking it to Germany, France, Belgium, Netherlands, England, all over the place. Dan from Byron Bay, Australia. Apparently, we've got an Australian following. Is it the Ryan Roland Smith effect? That's from Dan at Dan Clark Mariner. And Brett from Clearwater, Florida. So that's just a sampling of... All the messages the last couple of days. I love it. Feel free to contact me anytime, whether it's oh, about anything, really. Questions, whatever, at Gary Hill Jr., GaryHillPXP at gmail.com. I think it's so cool. We're like a worldly Mariners community here on the podcast, which I think is outstanding. And, again, it gives me another chance to say how much I appreciate you listening day in and day out. I really appreciate it, and it's been fun. I know a lot of you have been here since the beginning and have – help build this thing which is awesome to think about where it was at the beginning and where it is now with mob and everything and i'm pretty excited about that and you've had a big hand in it too and i say it all the time your feedback is so important the the ratings you leave on itunes everything like that is so important to what we're doing so i really appreciate you and uh yeah the feedback's fun i love it i love the conversation so let's have more of the conversation let's talk about what was a fantastic ball game last night. There is so much to talk about, so much that went well. And I think number one for me is Nathan Carnes. He was really, really sharp. Carnes ready. The windup and the 1-1. Swing and a ground ball to Seeger at third. He's got it behind the bag. Sets up, toss across, and time to get white. And that will retire the side. Nathan Carnes has retired the first six Astros hitters he has faced tonight. How about that? How about that? He was very stingy in the ball game as the Astros just could not find a way to get to Carnes at all. 
Gomez ready to run. He's in a sprinter's pose. He runs. Pitt swung on and fouled into the glove of Ionetta, who holds it up for Brian Gorman. Now Buena's a strikeout victim, and Nathan Carnes gets out of seventh inning treble. It was a pretty line for Carnes. Seven innings of two-hit ball, no runs, three walks, and six punch-outs on 104 pitches. He was outstanding, and it was really fun to see him tap into that potential that we've been talking about. I know I've talked about it several times. My projections for him this season are very high, and he he looked great. I mean, he really did. And we've talked so much about the bullpen and how good they've been. Quietly, you look at the starting rotation, the last turn, all five starters, each of them have gone at least seven innings. Through this turn, the starters, a 2.48 ERA 36 and a third innings, just 25 hits, just nine walks, and 26 strikeouts. The rotation has really settled in. This was a solid turn through the rotation. Here's Nathan Carnes after the ball game, what he had to say about his start. I'm just tired of not doing what I'm capable of doing. Uh, you know, I just really want to get a good, uh, a good performance today. Um, Mel did a great job with the scouting report. Uh, made it very, you know, crystal clear for me. I did took a great notes watching Taiwan do his thing yesterday. So, uh, you know, I just I stuck with our scouting report and uh, try to expose their weaknesses. Kind of off the get go. I mean, you came in one, two, three. How big was that for you? It was huge. Um, I mean, that's kind of been my struggle so far. So for me, the first thing was kind of big. Just kind of come in, start attacking, make them, you know, put them on their heels first, rather than you know try to nibble around the plate. So I just went after them, had success in the first, and kind of just kept that approach the rest of the game. We also saw a little bit more velocity from you today. Was that? Yeah, um, you know, I've been putting in a lot of work with Mel. Um, we're you know, trying to claim my, my mechanics and uh, my delivery, and uh, it's starting to show. And the third inning where you had those two walks, what'd you do to have to, to get it back on track? Yeah, that was just not being in the, not being in the stretch for a while. Um, we tried to try doing some slide steps, um, just try to keep my time to play a little shorter. Um, just didn't have feel for that. So, uh, you know, that was kind of frustrating to go four-pitch walk again. But, um, you know, we were able to kind of bounce out of that, had to run our second, so I could kind of go back to my normal delivery and uh, kind of got myself out of that. Is there, is there a little extra fire behind you when you know you're going up against the you know, reigning Cy Young Award winner? In the, in the American League, or does that you know, factor into it? I don't face him. I face their lineup, and uh, he faces our lineup. Um, you know, it was a tight ball game. Fourth inning, we got a run in. Um, I went back on the fifth. Um, really tried to put up a zero, um, and then our offense came back and put four more on the board. So right there gave me so much more breathing room. It really simplified my game, really just throwing strikes, make them, you know, put a couple hits together and uh, try to put a run on the board. But, uh, you know, I had a great defense, too. Marte came up big, a um, couple diving plays for me. So, uh, you know, it was a great win for the team. Was there anything specific that you saw from Taiwan that you were able to bring in today? Taiwan stayed aggressive. Um, you could tell when he was forcing his pitches away, it opened up the inside, and he exposed that with his, uh, you know, his splitter, his change up or whatever but you know it was just it was nice to see how when they were behind the counts their their zone got bigger so I just took note of that try to work ahead and you know really forced them to cover both sides of the plate did he recommend throwing 97 too <laughs> Probably, but I ain't got that in the tank, so uh, you know, that would have been, been hard to kind of maintain that. But, uh, you know, he, he's a young talent, and, you know, he's got a great future out of him. Looking at curveball, I had a pretty good feel for it. Really yeah, I felt like I, I didn't try to overthrow it today. You know, I was, I was comfortable where I was at, and, uh, you know, I kept throwing it to see if they were going to make any adjustments. And for the most part, they really just kind of let me throw it in there. Um, you know, I got a couple swings on that, but I think that was when I was heading the count on the other, on the outer half to right-handers, and uh, all that the best they could do is roll over to it and put it to Marte. So when it goes to him, I feel like it's for sure out.
I like hearing Carnes talk about pitching. I think he breaks it down pretty well. And that was a great assessment. And he was not joking about the curveball. 53 curveballs. He threw 44 fastballs, seven changes, and 53 curveballs. And he wasn't joking. He kept going to it until they could do something with it, and they never could. Two hits, no runs. Very impressive outing for Carnes as he goes seven innings, his deepest start in a Mariners uniform as the RNA slips down to 3.63 on the season. Very impressive stuff. So that was Nathan Carnes. Now, offensively, there's a lot to talk about here. It got going. Well, Dallas Keuchel on the hill, the defending Cy Young Award winner, and he hung three zeros on the board, but the Mariners broke through in the fourth inning. The stretch and the 1-1 pitch. Swing and a ground ball through the left side. A base hit into left field. Marte will score. Nelson Cruz with an RBI single. The Mariners have the lead. One to nothing here in the bottom of the fourth. Nelly Cruz with his 13th RBI this year. Then Marte would drive in a run in the fifth inning. He had an awesome night defensively and offensively. And that would bring up Robinson Cano. A big at bat in the ball game and a big at bat in his career. And the 1 1 to Robbie. Swing and a soft looper to shallow left field. That's going to drop in a base hit. One run will score. Smith scores. Here's Aoki. The throw to the plate. Not in time. Aoki will score and a throw to first. Now they've got Cano in a rundown. Tyler Smith has it. A throw to the plate to try to get Marte and he'll score. The throw gets on by the catcher, Castro. Holy smokes, three runs are in, and Robbie Cano winds up on its second base. Smith scores, Olke scores, and Marte will score. A five to nothing lead for the Mariners. A single for Cano, soft base hit the left field to drive in Smith, and Olke the throw to the plate was late. And then Castro went down to White. They had Cano in the rundown between first and second. Then Marte came in, kept right on coming, being waved in by Manny Acta. The throw to the plate was late. It was high, and it gets away from Castro. And Marte was able to score as well. Almost everybody scored. <laughs> that was such a crazy play. RBI 1,000 in his career as well. He picked up on that play, one of the youngest in history for a second baseman to get to 1,000 ribbies. And great play by Marte with Cano hung up in the rundown. He he stayed in it long enough for Marte to scoot in from third. Man, is he fast. But a fun play. Mariners adding runs on. They had five on the board at that point. And then in the seventh inning, Robinson Cano would put this game out of reach. 3-2 to Robbie, swung on, driven to deep right center field. Ball's got some carry, getting up, down a grand slam for Robinson Cano. And Americans have broken in wide open at 9-0 over Houston. Well, Grandma, get out the right front of mustard. It's grand salami time. Robbie Cano with his seventh home run of the season, 10th career grand slam. Six runs batted in for Cano in this ball game. What an at bat. Falling away pitch after pitch after pitch, and he rides one out of here. Holy smokes. And the Mariners break open this ball game, and they lead it nine to nothing. Robinson Cano ties a career high with six RBIs. 
This is the third time he's done it. One time in 2010 was against the Mariners when he hit a grand slam. So now he's doing it for the Mariners. He hits a grand slam, six RBIs. He has taken over the RBI lead in the American League. He has 21 now on the season. Robinson Cano, a huge, huge night. Two for four, a run scored, six RBIs. The Mariners coast to victory, 11-1, to 11 runs, 13 hits for the Mariners, one run, three hits for the Houston Astros. Dallas Keuchel gets roughed up, five earned in six innings. I mean, the offense really goes to work. In fact, Houston puts their backup catcher on the mound for the eighth. Big, big night for the Mariners, and they win the series, their fourth series win in a row, and they will go for the sweep tonight. The Astros fall to 6-15. and 15. Meanwhile, the Mariners in first place in the division and 11-9 and nine overall. And I know we're only 20 games in, but I'm going to read you this stat right here and just enjoy it. Just enjoy this win. Just enjoy this stat. We can acknowledge it's early, but just enjoy it. American League runs per game. The Red Sox have scored the most this year at 5.1 runs per game. Number two, the Seattle Mariners, 4.5 runs per game. The Rangers, 4.4. Baltimore, 4.3. Tigers, 4.2. And then the Blue Jays, 4.1. But the Mariners, the second highest scoring team right now in the American League, 4.5 runs a ball game. I know, early, but just take a second, sit back, smile. Enjoy it, and enjoy what uh, was a nice win last night, a series win. Now a chance to try and break out the brooms and sweep aside the Houston Astros. So tonight, 7-10 first pitch, Colin McHugh will go, and he has had his struggles. 1-3, a 7.56 ERA. Hisashi Iwakuma will get the ball for the M's. 0-2, 3.81 ERA. He'll look to keep the roll going with the rotation and the Mariners look to break out the sticks and sets up what's going to be a fun weekend, too, after an off day. The Kansas City Royals coming to town, the defending world champions. Felix pitching on Friday, which is going to be sensational. So Mariners' chance to break out the rooms and really set up what could be a fantastic weekend at Safeco Field. So Robinson Cano, a little bit of history for him, a big night for him. Here's what he had to say after the game. That, that's, that's the situation where you want to control us uh... As a player, and then you want to have the team to win, and those are the situations when what you want to go through. In that first at batter, I should say the single. Did you recognize the significance of those RBI right away? Well, honestly, I would say yes, because I saw it on the board early today. I saw like I know like last week, but uh, they they showed on the board today before the game, and uh, I told Manny, man, I need I need a ball if I get two RBIs today, and because uh, I mean th- those are good memories that um, you can share with your kids and. That that's something that um, you take, but I mean, it was big, but it's bigger that you can control, especially against Kaiko. Lefty, that it, it, it's hard to get here against him because he know how to pitch, he know where to put the ball, and he would get a single to go up by four runs, and that that's pretty special. Sorry, you get around first base. Are you did you get caught there, or were you trying to cause? Well, when I was, well, I was turning first. Honestly, I hit the ball. I don't know where the ball was. Honestly, and then. When I saw the high throw, I was trying to go to second, and so we're good. Probably got a three outs. Yeah, yeah, that, that that can happen. I mean, and those are situations where those are little details that you gotta pay attention to the game. You know, things got that um, 
it was we was winning five nothing. But those are situations that um close game, that's another team they're gonna take advantage of that. But good thing currency came up in the strikeout but bueno. Okay, in the bottom of the inning then you made up for it. Well I gotta pay him back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh I mean I've been in this game so long and that can happen. I mean there's there's no excuse for that and uh thank God that I can turn the next scene and be able to uh, hit a homer and <laughs> Go the first home. Um, well, yeah, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm in the box and we got a lot of witness. <laughs> the play of Cattell, though, tonight, both at the plate and defensively, how have you seen him grow? Well, I mean, that, that that's a guy that I know, and you know, I've been, I've been, I've been, I've been telling guys that um, he gives him out of time. I mean, more than you play, more than you learn. And he's he might be one of those guys that um, you know, he needs to play more than he plays, how he get, and better he gets. So. He's been pretty good for us, even if he wasn't swinging good, but he was playing a good defense because you're not, you're not going to be successful all the time. And that the, the one thing that um, I see really good for him that he didn't take when he's not swinging good, not taking to defense, I mean, and I, I've been telling him, you gotta, if you don't hit, you got to play defense. Even if you hit, play defense again. So you, you got to stay on it, and he's a great kid, great talent, and pretty special. No doubt, and he had a great game. We should point that out, offensively and defensively. Three for five, three runs scored, a couple of RBIs, really helped set the table for a big offensive night for the Mariners. Ionetta with a couple hits as well, 13 of them for the M's. I could probably talk about this game for another 45 minutes. I know the first part of the podcast is a little longer than normal, but I really think this game deserves it. It was a complete game for the Mariners, and now a chance to try and sweep aside the Houston Astros. Now we're going to hand things over. I think you'll enjoy this. Shannon Dreyer, a chance to catch up with Mike Hampton, Mariners bullpen coach, and his journey, of course, former Mariner, his journey to become the bullpen coach. After coaching for three years in the minors, he got his big league coaching call up this winter. He's doing more than answering the phone and the pen, however. He's coaching the relievers as well. With 16 years in the big leagues behind him, there's a lot he can teach, something he is eager to do. Well, I just wanted, you know, I want to build a trust. I want to build a relationship with our guys in the bullpen. And, uh, you know, that they trust what the information I'm giving them is going to help them succeed. And we got a lot of great, uh, great guys down there, um, a lot of great guys with, with different stuff. I think what we bring to the table of our bullpen is everybody has their own little thing. It's not when, when one guy follows the next, it's going to be you're going to see a little something different. So I try to give them the information based upon their stuff, how they can succeed. And, and you know, hopefully if they apply that, that they'll be successful. Who down there is most like you? It's hard to say. I think a, a bunch of these guys have, have that internal fire and, and that burn. But, you know, Tony and Zick and I have formed a pretty good relationship. I think the uh, I think Peralta, with his, you know, being a veteran and, and the way he goes about his business, um, I think the, the biggest thing I always did, I had fun, but when it's time to work, it was time to work. And I think all these guys bring that, even the guy like Vincent. I mean, you know, he, we have a lot of fun, but, man, you just see the eyes change when, when the phone rings and his name's called. So I think we all mesh together, gelled together, and I think we continue to learn. But uh, probably Tony the, the most. I think he's more intense than just about anybody. So far, it's probably him. Look at a guy like Mike Montgomery making a transition, and so far, knock on wood, this is fake wood, but good enough, it, it's been seamless. What have you seen from him? Well, you know, we kind of have similar paths um, in the fact that uh, my first full year in the big leagues, I relieved the whole time. I knew in my mind I felt that I was a starter, but 
uh, when you're in that spot, you're like pitching in the big leagues is the ultimate goal, and that's that's the ultimate dream, what you want to do. And uh, I think he has his stuff to start, but right now our necessity is for him to, to help us out of the bullpen. I think the biggest thing about being successful in that role is accepting that role and accepting where you are in your career. And I think he's starting to do that, and he's starting to learn, and he knows he's the guy that's going to give us some length. But with his stuff, I think he can pitch anywhere in the game and have a really good chance of success. Yeah, he's been a lot of fun to watch. On the other side, you get a guy like Cishek, the delivery and, and everything else. How closely do you watch for him, and what do you watch for him? How do you help him? I think he's he's impressed me more and more as, as from the start of spring training as we gradually grew into the season. Um, I think his fastball's gotten better. I think his slider's gotten better. I think his confidence has improved. And, and uh, you know, the ninth is a special inning, and you have to have a, a mentality out there. And he seems so laid back, so complex, but he has his routine. He really is trusting his stuff right now. Just catching it in general when you're out there along the lines playing catch, I mean, it's hard to catch. So I know it's hard to catch. It's hard to hit. And, and for, uh, for that role, you have to have confidence. You also have to have a short-term memory, you know, if, have a bad game, you know, tomorrow, hey, we've got the lead, you're back out there again. And I'm uh, just really impressed with where he's at, what he's been able to accomplish so far. And I just think uh, if he just stays right there and believes in himself, he's going to have a solid year and he's going to uh, win a lot of games for us. We've seen so much from this group early. And uh, if, if you're following along with what everybody on the outside was saying, this bullpen was the biggest question mark going into the season. Not necessarily the biggest names, but yet there they've been coming through in every situation. How would you describe them? Well, I just think, you know, they feed off of one another. And I think that's a great thing about a bullpen. You know, one guy throws a scoreless inning, you want to be the next guy to complete that. And then, you know, you keep following. But, you know, with uh, Peralta and Benoit down there doing it so long, they help these young guys. They help them with their routine and help, you know, with their, with their mindset. And that's just a big plus. And like I said, I do the, the best I can is giving them the information that I think that they can use to be successful. But really, they've just stepped up themselves and, uh, and really done a great job. Shannon Dreyer here, and today we continue our conversation with bullpen coach Mike Hampton, who tells us about his history with Jerry DePoto and a number of the Mariners' coaches. Jerry, I met him uh, when we were both spring training in, uh, in Colorado, and that's when he had his, his neck issue and, and had to retire. So that was my f- first spring training with him, and he had been there for a while. And then, uh, again, we connected uh, when I was coming off of a shoulder surgery, and he was the GM in Arizona, and uh, my agent, Mark Rogers, asked, hey, you know, take a look at him, see what you think. And he's like, hey, how about you go to AAA, and if thing goes, things go well there, we'll call you up in September. I'm like, all right, I'm on board for that. Then once, once my uh, playing career was over, I took about a year and a half off and kind of was bored and wanted to kind of get back in the game, and he was the first person I called. Scotty was the assistant GM then, and they had an opening in AA, and he goes, well, how about AA? I'm like, Sounds like a good place to start. Way better than starting in uh, chain link fence league, they call it. That's kind of how I got my start coaching. And uh, I can think it's a great group of guys, guys I trust, guys that I feel that are uh, some of the best in the business. So uh, why not to start your job uh, or start working for guys that you really trust in? You mentioned Double A. I believe Tim Bogar was the manager of that club. What did you learn in that first year about being kind of on the other side? Well, you know, when you go into coaching, for me it was always, you know, wanting to compete you wonder if that fire would be there as a coach and you know I've known Bogey for for a while and I just knew the type of player he was he crossed the T's dotted the I's he was one of those players that wasn't gifted in the fact that he had tons of range or tons of bat speed or whatever but he worked really hard at it he knew the fundamentals and he knew what it took to for him to be successful and he applied that to coaching and for my first year to have a manager like him that that really helped me and he he was really coaching me as well to how to do this and how to get better at it so to have him do that uh, I know when he came over here 
here. I was like, man, it'd be great to work together. And he goes, well, call them up and see what you got. He says, if they get the bullpen coach job. And I'm like, all right. I mean, it's worth a call. What can they say is no. So I called up and... And as after some things went through, and I was just really excited to get the job and look forward to the opportunity to work with a great group of guys. Hey, I want to go back to something you said earlier. When you were talking about all the connections, you mentioned playing with Edgar Martinez in Puerto Rico. I've heard stories about that. I, I heard that people would just come for miles to see him. And, and what was that like playing with him in Puerto Rico? Well, I was, I was such a young guy. And, I mean, he was established in just, just his work ethic and his routine and just the, the – I mean, hand-eye coordination, like, for me, probably the best right-handed hitter that, that I've seen. I mean, just a special player, and, and he was one of those guys that you would pay to watch. And uh, if you ever go down to, to Winter Bowl, they, they love their, their players there. They, uh, they're all about country, and, and their guys are uh, really give back. And I remember, I think more so back then a little bit than now because there's so much money involved in the game, but so many big league players were playing in Winter Bowl. And, you know, you get lost in these big stadiums, but the smaller stadiums and they're loud. I mean, I always said you can put 10,000 Latin American fans in a stadium like this and they'll drown out the, the, the other 50. And, and, you know, to have a special player like that. And they have a lot of guys. They really root for their country, for their countrymen. And so for me, just to be able to sit back and, and watch that and just watch how he prepared and, and just how good he was. He's just such a great player. And then he's just so humble on top of that. And that just, for me, that's just icing on the cake. You're back together years later coaching, which is just awesome. The last thing, you're also back in Seattle. Little history there. What's it like for you to be back in the Mariners organization? You know, it's great. It's where I got my start, the farthest place from home. I remember getting drafted, and I was like, <laughs> Seattle. I'm like, wow, that's a long way. I mean, I can't get any farther. But, I, you know, I come from a small town in Florida, and I was just really blessed to be drafted and be able to play the game that I, you know, I, I had a dream, and, and for my dream to come true to play and then see, for Seattle to make that happen. And now to go back, and there's some people that still remember me, and I remember there's some people that had the transaction papers on my trade. I'm like, why well, just send it through? I know, I mean, it worked out, but I mean, when this job came available, I did go back to to where I, you know, I get to start my pro uh, coaching uh, career where I started uh, playing as a 17 year old. So come full circle, and couldn't be happier. And now a conversation. I hope you enjoy this. I think it's pretty interesting, especially. We get uh, to talk about the Mariners closer, and it, I think it's something to think about when you watch him on the mound with his velocity. Here it comes. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. Is uh, We're going to talk velocity, real velocity, perceived velocity. It's going to be a fun conversation. Spencil Bengal is here, contributing editor of Beyond the Box Score. You can see him at Crashburn Alley as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Spencer Bingle, B-I-N-G-O-L. Spencer, thanks a lot for taking the time. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Hey, Gary. I'm happy to talk to you. So before we get to kind of specifics of velocity, I want to talk in general terms about where you think this is all going in terms of StatCast data and where this all could lead. How excited are you about what feels like almost a new era when it comes to data in baseball? I mean, it's thrilling. It's really exciting what we get to do now with some of the stuff that has been released by MLB Advanced Media and specifically what uh, Darren Willman has done since he re-released Baseball Savant under the MLB umbrella. Mm -hmm. We've gotten loads more information on exit velocities of batted balls, of launch uh, angles, of you know even pitcher extension and perceived velocity, which is what you know the article was about that I wrote. Um, it's it opens up a lot of new doors for uh, uh, for ways to potentially find values in players that may be underperforming or overperforming or, you know, uh, better assess, or I guess it, it helps us better assess players moving forward. 
Is there a specific area that you're most intrigued about? Uh, you know, I'm really intrigued by I've always I've always been intrigued since I, I read Moneyball a long time ago. They described this proprietary system they had that was a results independent uh, way to measure fielders, and they used basically where the ball was hit, how hard it was hit, and how frequently similar hit balls, similarly hit balls, were fielded by players in the past to grade players as fielders. And I think if we have you know with the information we have. We don't necessarily have everything, but there's a way that we could begin to see a way to judge, you know, that player bobbled a double, so we might not want to uh, uh, ding the pitcher quite as much as a hard hit double down the line. Mm. Um, you know, so th uh, that's just a, that's a kind of a wild kind of uh, probably a ways away in the public sphere, but that's definitely something that I think teams have probably gotten a hold of faster with the stack S data they have available. I would love for that sort of thing to become public because, I, I mean, defense is such a huge part of baseball, but I still feel like in, in terms of public conversation, it's still hard to talk about because it's still tough for people to get their arms around because I don't feel like there's – I mean, it's so much easier to just talk about the numbers that we all know. It's more difficult to talk about Absolutely. defense, yeah. Absolutely. You know, we, we feel like uh, in general – Offense is pretty well understood at mm -hmm. this point. You know, it's not something like weighted runs created plus or OPS plus is not. It, it's close enough to being fact to be almost like a camping stat. Like we're very confident in the right. accuracy of our offensive numbers. But fielding numbers, you know, despite great efforts by, with things like UZR or uh, VRS, are, everyone involved in them would still probably tell you that there's a, there are some gaping holes in the way that we evaluate defense sabermetrically. Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you. So let's talk about what you wrote. It's on Beyond the Box Score, and it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So it's about actual velocity versus perceived velocity. So walk us through it a little bit. What are you talking about when you use those terms? Sure. So perceived velocity is one of these exciting new fields that we've gotten using StatCast. Perceived velocity is basically an adjustment to the actual release velocity of a pitch based on how close to the plate the pitcher was when he released the ball. So the example I use in the piece is if two relievers throw a fastball at 100 miles an hour, but one can extend a foot closer to the plate when he releases the ball, that pitch is going to be more effective against hitters because they're going to have less time to react. The pitch is going to have less time to slow down by the time it gets to the plate, and it's going to basically have the effect of a harder thrown pitch. And, you know, the king of this is Carter Capps, mm. who I uh, highlighted in the piece, who has his controversial hot step delivery. So he averaged, I think it was 97 and a half miles an hour on that forcing fastball. But with his hop, he was able to get over eight and a half feet of extension on the average pitch and effectively through the pitch as if it were 101 and a half. So over th almost three and a half or four miles per hour added velocity as far as hitters were concerned because of the way that he released the ball. I think that's so significant because we talk about velocity and even one mile per hour difference can, can make a huge difference. And right there with Caps, you're talking about three and a half. I mean, that is a giant difference. Yeah, it's massive. And I, one of the things I was most interested in was seeing, you know, are there any pitchers who have gone from being maybe fringe major leaguers or, you know, who don't have a lot of potential to suddenly they're getting great extension on their throwing and their pitches are coming across at a more effective and more usable speed 
you know, someone like Yasmero Petit with the Giants has carved out a several-year career for himself in the major leagues despite an actual fastball that's in the high 80s at this point. But with a couple extra miles per hour of added velocity, gets somewhere close to league average. And it works the other way too, right? It does work the other way. Although, you know, I would I would not go so far as to say it'll kill any pitcher uh-huh. because pitching is such a – this is one part of a very complex uh, issue, but it certainly doesn't help to lose velocity. Actually, on the Mariners specifically, Joel Peralta is the worst at this, actually. He loses over two miles an hour on his already somewhat slower fastball. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's been effective so far this year, but – that's something to be wary of moving forward is that, you know, he's he's actually – tatters are seeing his fastballs as if they're about 86 miles an hour instead of maybe 88. With the data that you looked at, were there any any trends you came up with, any any pitchers that piqued your interest? Uh, Noah Syndergaard came out immediately when I saw the leaderboards. He is already unfair. You know, he throws a 95-mile-an-hour slider. But even that pitch gets over a mile – per hour of added velocity because of how much extension he gets on the ball uh and same with his sinker you know he throws a sinker at 97 miles an hour but with over a mile per hour of added velocity he's up to you know 98 99 miles per hour on the sinker so he's fascinating additionally michael waka gets very good extension um I did notice uh felix fernandez doesn't get a ton but he gets you know uh, almost a little over half a mile an hour on all his pitches, even, you know, despite the his his recent somewhat velocity loss. Mm-hmm. And I noticed you broke it down uh, by pitch as well, which leads to the Mariners' closer, Steve Ciszek, which I, I think is pretty interesting. His sinker at, you have at 91 actual and perceived at 92.8, nearly 93 miles per hour, and especially with the way he delivers. It's pretty interesting. It's an interesting look, and that's a lot of added velo. Yeah, it is. It makes it helps make him so effective. It's very interesting that both he and Caps have spent a lot of time on the Marlins in, uh-huh. the, in their bullpen, but they both have these very unique deliveries. And uh, C-Check specifically does have that sidearm delivery. And while research hasn't really been done in this area, I'm curious to see if maybe you know the release or the release slot or the arm slot that the pitcher throws from has some kind of uh, effect on the extension that they get. But he's been doing very well this year for the Mariners. Well, that's an interesting thought. And then I guess you can break it down even more specifically than that at some point, right, when you're talking about how a lefty perceives it as opposed to a righty perceives it. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of different areas where this could branch out. Absolutely. This isn't even the full extent of where you can go with perceived velocity. I remember I heard a lot on the uh, – Doug Thorburn talking on the tin stat, the there is no such thing as a pitching uh, prospect podcast a while ago about how the way you sequence pitches or, you know, the way if you throw a 75 mile an hour curveball down and away, the 95 mile an hour fastball that you throw up and in appears faster to a batter because they still have in their head what the previous pitch looked like. And if you can combine extension and those kinds of sequencing and, um, pitch calling uh, skills into the same package, it could be a really effective pitcher. And this this kind of conversation really points out to me because sometimes 
you're left wondering or where, where else can teams go? Where can teams find the advantage? And it's a conversation like this where I think it points out that it's almost endless where teams can try and find that little advantage because there's so many different there's so many different ways to explore baseball that are still left. Unearthed. Oh, absolutely. Statcast is generating trillion or excuse me terabytes of data per game at this point in terms of raw data. And the way that you can endlessly manipulate that is, you know, I mean, endlessly. It's, it's, it, there's really no end to the way that these really smart people that work for teams are trying to crunch these numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a really excellent read. It was a lot of fun, and uh, your work's fantastic. Beyond the box score, you can follow Spencer on Twitter, at Spencer Bingle. Also, Crashburn Alley, especially for Philly fans, that's the place to go. Well, hopefully we get a chance to do this again. I'd like to talk down the road. This was fun. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. And here comes the debut of Ricky Henderson to a standing ovation. So Ricky Henderson makes his Mariner debut at about uh, nine minutes after 10 here on the 19th of May 2000 to a standing ovation. So now the Henderson factor comes into play immediately. And the fans are really into this thing now. Ricky is lead, and now the stretch. There he goes. The pitch is swung on and hit to center field and deep. That's going to be over the head of the center field of Williams. Ricky to third base. They're going to wave him in. Here's the throw. The relay to the plate. It's not going to be in time. We are tied at 6-6. Ricky Henderson hesitated. Had to be sure the ball was going to be over Williams' head. It was. He came in standing up and just made it as he flew around third. And just like that, this crowd is going crazy. We are tied at 6-6. See you later!